Hello everyone, it's January 9th, 2024. This week we're doing a big review of all the NIAC Phase 1 winners, all those crazy cool concepts. Everything from film isotope nuclear engines to airplanes on Mars to hydrogen tanks that don't experience boil-off. It's Christmas all over again, so let's celebrate with a podcast and lift off. Welcome to episode 441 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we're all back together again. Man, if it felt like this podcast didn't exist for a while. Like, I totally forgot that you guys even recorded last week. <laughs> David <laughs> David texts me. He's like, hey, I know you didn't record with us, but can you help with the show notes? I was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that that even existed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for helping with the show us because I that that's the hardest thing in the world for me. I mean, it's uh, tough. Yeah, actually, I thought, you know, I thought that... I I didn't put into the show notes, but like, I I need a developer. I think I just need somebody else to build this website for me because I am absolutely not going to have time to work on it at all. I think the whole year. And so like, if anybody does development, I have, I have it set up in node using strappy as, as a CRM and I not CRM as a content management solution. And I've worked enough with strappy in the last uh, two years that I know I don't want to continue using it because <laughs> the company it, it's open source, but the company that, that owns it and, and develops it uh, apparently doesn't believe in documentation at all. It's, it's really bad. Um, and so like if somebody, uh, writes, uh, JavaScript or, uh, we could do Python. Um, most of it is just going to be a statically generated site, but we're going to need some live server stuff to do, um, probably index searches, um, and definitely to parse, uh, and respond to, uh, search par or the query params for, I, I want to have really good RSS support so you can like, build a search and then use that as an RSS feed. And so I'm happy to to do that, but we could, we could do it in Python or JavaScript or whatever. And I've got basically the whole front end done. Uh, we'll need to develop a, like an admin backend. Um, Cause I'm going to have some pretty uh, heavy, um, like pre-processing stuff that'll need to run pre-processing steps. But like if anybody uh, is comfortable doing this stuff and wants to do it, we will pay you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and volunteer the, th- the money that the three of us control, I'm just going to unilaterally uh, volunteer it because we don't have that much else that we spend cash on. So if you're interested, please get in touch. Ben at the orbitalmechanics.com or ben.etherington at hey.com. Uh, please get in touch, preferably somebody with a public portfolio. But if you've done a lot of like uh, closed source work or like proprietary stuff, um, we can we can talk about it. But I would like, I would like to be able to get this done in a couple months if I've got somebody else who can do the bulk of the, uh, of the work. Um, and I'm, I'm really good to work with on coding projects. Like I, I know how to write a dossier and everything. So if any, if anybody's interested, totally forgot to actually include it in any official notes, but <laughs> please help, <laughs> help. I have money. Come take it. But the, but the, the, we actually had a real thing we were going to talk about. I didn't know that uh, Vulcan and Peregrine were going to be launching. And when we, when Dennis was writing up the upcoming spaceflight events, uh, it wasn't in there. I was like, well, what the heck happened? Like, did it get delayed? And the answer is no, it's just going to happen before this show comes out. So hopefully you guys know more about it than we do, but like, I'm really excited. It's currently Sunday. And it will launch the next time 2 a.m. rolls around uh, Eastern time. So that kind of sucks for me, but I'm going to wake up and, and watch the video. Hopefully, that'll be good video. 
But yeah, so so I'm I'm a big fan of Peregrine because it was built here in Pennsylvania, a couple hours away from me, and I was this close to being able to schedule a visit to go check it out. I, I had somebody who said, "Yes, you can come take a look at it," and like I just couldn't get the scheduling to work out. So these are uh, Pittsburgh people, right? Yep. Astrobotic? Yeah, they're, they're, I think they're outside of Pittsburgh, but it's all kind of the same to me because I'm in the middle of the state and <laughs> I've never been. <laughs> I've driven through Pittsburgh and that's about it. But yeah, uh, like Vulcan launching for the first time with a, a commercial lunar lander, like, and a, a big commercial lunar lander. Like, this is so cool. NIAC 2024 Phase 1 Awardees. Yeah. So, NIAC, the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. Uh, just to remind everyone what that stands for, because I forget Including myself me. a lot. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard to remember. But uh, yes, yeah, so we have a whole list here. Okay. Yeah. So, there are 13 uh, awardees here. And this is a, a Phase 1 award. They do... Is it three phases that they do? Yeah. One, two, and three. Yep. And so, some of these will take this funding, do their study, and when they're done, they're done. And some of them will probably move on into phase two and three. We haven't had a phase three selection since 2021. Um, but like NIAC is really like Christmas Day for us, I feel like. And I don't remember if we focused on it last year or not. Um, but like these are future technologies um, that have enough promise, but not enough development that, you know, they're, they're good to give money to. And I don't even know what, how big the award is. I think it varies, doesn't it? But I mean, potentially, you know, millions of dollars. And I think some of the smallest have been, you know, a couple hundred dollars or less. Typically, well, according to at least this one source, they say among 42 phase two contracts, Came to a total of twenty seven point three million, so probably okay. less than a million a piece but, for phase two. Yeah, and then again, because this is so out there and low TRL level, you you probably yeah. don't need that much money. It's not like you know you're building something that you're actually going to launch to space. Typically, yeah, you're paying grad students. Um, so we've listed out all fourteen, and we're just going to go through uh like a couple of bullet points for each one and, and talk about what they're studying. All right, so first up is the Solar System Scale VLBI to dramatically improve cosmological distant measurements. So uh, VLBI is very long base length interferometry. Baseline. Baseline. Oh, yeah. Baseline for sure. Um, and uh, that it's exactly what it sounds like. But th this is one of the awards that like really does what it says on the tin. Like everything's packed into that title. So this comes from uh, Matthew McQuinn at the University of Washington. And... Uh, basically, this project is looking at a future uh, telescope network on the moon. Oh, oh, sorry, not on the moon, uh, uh, in the solar system that could add a lot of precision to the distance measurements that we have for extragalactic radiation sources, so like ra radio waves. And yeah, this is so much bigger than the moon. The idea is that they want to put satellites on opposite sides of the solar system uh, in relatively high orbits, I believe they didn't, they didn't say, but some of the other things make me think that they're probably going to be out as far as, as is practical, which, right. This is, this is pretty expensive. If you're sending something up to like, you know, Mars orbit, that's expensive enough, but doing it twice or three times starts getting really expensive. But the idea is that by spacing these satellites really far apart, you can, uh, time 
fast radio bursts coming in from outside the solar system and get uh, a differentiation as that radio wave passes through the solar system from one end to the other um, or from one middle to the other, right? Like, I don't think these are going to be up at uh, Neptune uh, orbits. Uh, but normally, if you did that, you would basically be measuring the distance between your two receivers, right? You know how fast light moves. You know when one saw the beginning of the wave and you know when the other one saw the beginning of the wave and you're really just running a tape measure between between the two satellites. But what they're actually going to do here is they're basing on, uh, they're building on this sort of interferometry work that's been done before. And uh, they're going to be looking at the, the curvature of the EM wave front. And I, I think the purpose of measuring that curvature, that's, that'd be like the ramp up time. Does that sound reasonable, Dennis? Yeah. Cause, cause it could, it could either be the ramp up time or it could be like the radius curvature. And so like a, a smaller radius would mean a, a closer source and a longer radius would mean a, a further source as that wave expands out. But I think it might be the ramp up time and they might be measuring the, the way that the, um, that EM wave front degrades over distance, um, which is all I, I, like, I don't, I don't know. They weren't super specific in their application and, this is not one of the ones that I went to look up a paper for because I know I would not be able to understand it in a half hour. <laughs> but um, anyway, so being able to get better distance measurements of cosmological distances, things outside of our galaxy. But there's a lot of other things they could do. Um, they could um, use these guys to measure the mass distribution in the outer solar system. Um, so like, one of the things that we don't know is like how much mass is out in the art cloud. Um, and so we can get better ideas of that. Um, they could also use it to detect microhertz gravitational waves, which is not something that we've really done before. Uh, I think we've been looking at microhertz. Have we been looking at longer wavelength gravitational waves? I think that's probably. If I remember correctly, I think we measure, we measure the short, uh, the, the high frequency short wavelength ones and go into Well, I mean, long... microhertz is pretty, pretty tiny. Yeah. So that's super duper long wavelengths. That might, that's the kind of one maybe for like a pulsar timing array where you're using a whole weird method of trying to measure. Like, I mean, you got to be able to solar, you got galactic size wavelengths in that case or something. Okay. I mean, like to be able to look at, at gravitational waves from pulsars, like that's, that's bizarre. Like that, that's not black holes orbiting each other. Oh no. Right? It, what you do is you measure because the pulsars give you such precise timing. You measure the gravitational waves as they, as they pass through the pulsars and affect the timing of the pulsars. Oh, and so okay. you can you use the pulsars as your telescope, essentially as your, oh, cool. as your antenna. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's really neat. Um, okay. So yeah, VLBI is very long baseline interferometry. Oh, sorry. Can I interject real quick? Yeah. I, I, I looked up the whole issue with the, uh, the curvature of the wavefront and it just has cool. to do with that. That's going to affect the time of arrival and thus the distance you measure for a single detector. And so if you have a bunch of detectors, you can tell what that wavefront is and then you can kind of back that to where the true you know, origin of that object was and thus trying to get a more accurate distance. Okay. So it's like the radius curvature then. I believe so. Yeah. So like the straighter the line, the farther the thing. So like telling where you dropped a pebble into a pond by looking only at the ripples on the other side. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. 
like the Earth's okay. surface seems flat <laughs> because it's right. Radius of curvature is <laughs> pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay. Um, so then the the next one, right? So that was VLBI. Now the next one is a long, a lunar long baseline optical imaging interferometer, interferometer. Uh, colon Artemis enabled stellar imager. So the acronym for this one is ACI, A-E-S-I, Artemis enabled stellar imager. This comes from Kenneth Carpenter at NASA Goddard. Um, and so they're looking at using visible and ultraviolet, uh, wavelength telescopes and potentially, um, a long baseline interferometer on the lunar surface. Uh, could be good enough to resolve the surfaces of stars, uh, like not our star, but other stars. And this sort of technology really is the first step towards resolving exoplanet, uh, surface features. And, uh, Carpenter even suggests like weather patterns is the kind of thing that we could be looking at in the future. Um, so we've been talking about doing LBI, not VLBI, just normal LBI, uh, on the surface of the moon, uh, since like the sixties. But, um, you know, a couple of studies showed that, um, putting telescopes on the moon isn't really that great of an idea unless you can have people there to do maintenance. And so we focused on space-based telescopes because it's a cleaner and easier environment to exist in on a, on a lot of different levels. You, d- you don't have dust and all that. And so now that Artemis is potentially looking at a continued uh, human uh, presence on the moon, well, heck, LBI starts to make sense again. Uh, doing it on this on the surface of the moon. Um, so we could go back to this idea that we've had for for decades. Um, and one of the things that Carpenter points out is that because like your real product, your real data product at the end is computed values from observed values, um, you can basically do whatever you want and just include it in the in the calculations. So you could start with small baselines and small telescopes um, you know, just like having, um, your Artemis, uh, astronauts drive one direction and put down a telescope and then drive the other direction and put down a telescope. And then later on, you can expand that network into, uh, or expand that by work, like just a two point network into a mm-hmm. larger network, um, adding, um, larger telescopes at longer distances and, and just be able to do more interferometry. It's pretty cool. So getting out of the the science and getting more into the engineering, this next one is really cool. Uh, it's titled uh, Magneto Hydrodynamic Drive for Hydrogen and Oxygen Production in Mars Transfer. This comes from Alvaro Romero Calvo at Georgia Tech. And the idea is we're probably going to want to take water to Mars with us and use that water to produce oxygen for us to breathe. It's just denser than, uh, than oxygen, uh, ga- gaseous or liquid oxygen. Um, maybe, maybe not, you know, who, who knows if this is the way that we'll start, but I think eventually we'll, we'll have to do electrolysis on the way out to Mars. Um, if we want to have large payload capacities and that kind of thing. And so doing electrolysis is, it's good, but it's not great. Uh, and this is just the idea where like, if you take a cup full of water and drop a nine volt battery in, you can, you'll see bubbles being produced on the anode and the cathode. And you can even drop, uh, test tubes or something down, 
to sit on top of those two battery electrodes. Um, and in one side will be hydrogen and the other side will be oxygen. And what's really cool is like you even get uh, double the amount of hydrogen building up the gas. The column will, will be twice as tall as the oxygen over time because you're producing uh, two uh, hydrogen molecules, two hydrogen atoms for every one uh, oxygen uh, atom or oxygen molecule, right? So just dropping a batter into water, you can do this and you get the two gases split off in two different locations and like you can breathe one and burn the other, but it's, it's not super efficient. You have to spend a decent amount of electricity. You have to make sure that, uh, your water has not water in it, right? You have to water on its own. Isn't very conductive. So you have to add a little bit of salt or something uh, to actually be able to conduct water and reduce the resistance. And there, there are all these inefficiencies that happen. And so this uh, proposal looks at using um, magnetohydrodynamic uh, effects to make um, electrolysis more efficient. So they say that they want to build a solid state or investigate building a solid state magno hydrodynamic electrolytic cell. Um, so if we break that down, uh, magneto is uh, the magnetic field part of it. Hydrodynamic is the water part of it. Electrolytic is the splitting part of it. And then cell is just saying, we're going to put all this in a box. And uh, by flowing a magnetic field through the water in a particular way, you actually um, use Lorentz forces to uh, mean that you get more gas coming out for a given unit of electricity. And so Lorentz forces are basically talk a way to quantify the interaction between electric uh, electric field uh, changes and magnetic field changes. Um, right. Cause it's, it's all the same sort of stuff. The, uh, uh, electromagnetic, electromagnetic fields are oscillations in, in space, space time, right? So like electricity and, and magnets, they're, they're basically the same thing, just different expressions of the same thing. Yeah. Same force of nature. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Good, good to actually use the real words. Um, and so, you can basically combine these to make super electricity, I guess, is, is one way to think about it. But we're talking about real efficiency gains here. Their preliminary estimates say um, that they could uh, produce a 50% mass reduction in the equipment compared to other oxygen generation uh, mechanisms. And because there are no moving parts, you can get something like a 99% reliability level. Um, and this, this 50% mass reduction is specifically talking about a mission where you're consuming 2.26 kilograms of oxygen. Uh, that's four people on a standard Mars transfer. Um, so that, that's the amount of oxygen you have to produce is the amount of time you have to have it work over. And you, you're, you're getting to cut your, uh, your infrastructure mass by 50% and still maintaining a 99% reliability level over that period of time. Seems pretty darn cool. Like I, I don't understand how throwing magnets in like they're, and they're probably electromagnets. So you're probably spending electricity on those electromagnets, uh, somehow gets you better, uh, electrolysis efficiency. But I, I can at least kind of see how. In, in theory, this works, even if I don't understand the actual details. Yeah, one one of the one of the NIAC awards I'll talk about 
has magic involved as well. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> and by magic, I mean something that I don't understand how it works, but it does. <laughs> well, uh, this is not magic, this next one. It, it feels much more caveman to me, uh, like caveman in space. Uh, so it's called uh, T-Finer. That stands for uh, Thin Film Isotope Nuclear Engine Rocket. And yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. So this comes from James Bickford at Draper Lab. And I like to think of this as the solid version of a nuclear engine. So if you've got uh, solid boosters, this is a solid nuclear booster. Now, this is not for ascent. This is for... Um, navigating in space um, and doing so over long distances. And we're talking really long distances. Potentially, this is a, a very efficient way to slow down at another star. But that's really putting the cart before the horse. Um, if this is developed, uh, we would really use this to explore uh, the outer planets, to explore um, uh, asteroids, uh, maybe even the Oort cloud, like who knows. Um, but we're talking about a uh, relatively low thrust over a very long period of time and um, generating pretty high uh, delta V with not a lot of mass. So this is, this is on the ion engine level of, of uh, propulsion. So he, here's how this works. If you have a radioactive isotope, it's constantly decaying and spitting out decay products. And if you were to put it in a, if you were to shield half of it, all of those decay products would be pointed in one direction or at least in one hemisphere, right? And so you would get a little bit of thrust just from this, the, these atoms at, being too big and falling apart. So the idea here is you take a, radioac a radioactive isotope and you squish it real thin and then you put a sheet, you paint, basically you paint a shield on the back. Um, and so you've got a very large surface area. And as this product decays, you, you get a lot of momentum because you just spread it out over such a wide area. And boy, we're, we're talking about really thin and really big. So their baseline design that they want to study is a 10 micron thick layer of thorium-228. And the absorber, it wouldn't be painted on, I don't think, uh, but the absorber would only be 50 microns, and that's the backing layer. Um, thorium-228 has a 1.9 year half-life, so half of your thrust would be used up in two years. But there are some extra efficiencies on top of it. You're not just getting the thorium-228 radiation products you're, or decay products. You're also getting um, daughter products. Um, be, you know, thorium doesn't decay straight into iron. Uh, it takes a couple of steps down. Um, and so those daughter products have um, half-lives between 300 nanoseconds and three days. So you're getting all these different things dumping out all the radioactive things that you'd expect, uh, beta radiation, right. As, as electrons, alpha radiation is protons, I think. Um, and so you're just dumping mass and, and momentum overboard. Alphas, helium, nuclei, betas, electrons, Heliums. gammas, gamma rays. Did you say yeah, I got that. alpha is an alpha a proton? No, it's a helium nucleus. So it's two protons, two neutrons together. Oh, it's two, two of, okay, okay. But I mean, I was pretty close. I, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty proud of how close I was. 
No, that that was good. Sorry, I, I was looking at the image trying to understand it, and then I I, I thought you said beta was protons. So that was why I just wanted. Yeah, to no, 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 so. no. I, I said beta was electrons. I, I'm pretty sure I got that one right. Good job. All right, cool. So anyway, by by picking the right uh, radioactive like starter, um, you can potentially pick a decay chain that you want, and you can increase the performance. 500 to- or 500%, five times over just that initial decay. And obviously this is not like something you do actively. Like you just pick the right thing that's going to dump out the most, um, the, the most mass and, and momentum. And so that's like, that's already pretty cool. Um, you could, you know, you're going to eat up half of your propulsion in two years, but you can also bring along longer half-life isotopes, um, like AC-227. What's AC? Do you know off the top of your head? Actinium. Actinium. Never really heard about it. Um, but you know, the, they, they talk about using these as like later stages of, of your propulsion. And so I think at this point you can understand why I'm thinking about this as a, as a, a solid engine because basically once you unfold this thing, it's pushing, right? You don't really, you, you don't really get a choice about turning this thing back off. Yeah. You could, you know, fold your panels back up and block it, but like, you're still going to be spending that fuel um, as it were, but there are some other really cool uh, byproducts um, that an architecture like this uh, could result in. So if you don't just block the the backside of it and stop there you could use thermoelectrics to generate uh electricity uh that that seems pretty obvious like the sail is going to get pretty hot so why not use that heat you're going to wind up uh because you're releasing all of these decay products you could also include uh a beta emitter to neutralize the charge as you're dumping electrons overboard uh, or dumping electrons and positrons. That's antimatter, isn't it? Yeah, it's a anti-electron. Yeah. yeah what's, what's the, Protons? we just said it. Proton. Thank you. Good God. I can never get, get the word proton into my head sometimes. So like if you're dumping electrons and protons overboard, uh, presumably they're not going to be in perfect balance. So you're going to build up a charge. Um, and I'm assuming you'd build up uh, a positive charge. So you could, um, bring along a material that specifically just emits beta radiation. And so that will neutralize the charge over your sail. Or alternatively, um, you could work to increase the charge on your sail. If you get a voltage bias across the sail, you could uh, potentially direct the exhaust that you're dumping out and get more thrust than just whatever happens you know, whatever part of the vector happens to be pointed in the direction you want to go. Um, you could actually shape your exhaust, which is pretty cool. You could also, you know, use this giant thing as a solar sail because it, it already sounds a lot like a solar sail, right? It's very thin material spread over a large area. Well, if you charge it up, then the solar wind, you can use that to push you, uh, as well as, uh, using the, the decay products. Or the, the radiation. Um, so some concrete numbers to kind of give us an idea of, of what kind of missions we're talking about here. Uh, Bickford includes, um, some estimates, some early estimates of what they think this could be capable of. So if you were to take 30 kilograms worth of thorium 228 or maybe some, you know, mixture of, of products, 30 kilograms worth of radioactive material 
You spread it over uh, 250 square meters. That could produce over 150 kilometers per second of delta V if your payload was also about 30 kilograms. And like 30 kilograms is is a pretty decent amount of of science gear and you know communications gear and to be able to push that around the solar system with over 150 kilometers per second of delta v and potentially thermodynamic electricity to power everything this really seems like this could be a a real exploration powerhouse you're probably not going to make more than one or two of them but even just one mission using this sort of an architecture could do a lot of science in his lifetime. That does seem pretty cool because 150 kilometers per second, yeah, that's a lot to work with. Like if you're just getting around the solar system and you're having to enter, you know, yeah. the orbit of one moon or planet or something and then, you know, push on to some other, that's actually plenty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could you could do a series of flybys, you could enter orbits. Like this is this is enter orbiting kind of money, right? Like we're talking about actually being able to slow down and then accelerate away from multiple planetary or protoplanetary targets. It's really cool. It, it kind of sucks that like you don't really have control over when you're spending this fuel. Like you're spending it whether you're taking advantage of it or, or not, but still very, very cool. Um, so speaking of covering a lot of ground, uh, the next proposal or the next award here, uh, is the Mars Aerial and Ground Global Intelligent Explorer or MAGI. It's a pretty darn good acronym. Um, this, uh, was written up by, uh, Gecheng Zha, uh, from CoFlowJet. I read their company name as ConfloJet and it's CoFlowJet. And, uh, in essence, this is a solar powered VTOL aircraft for Mars. And Mars is uh, not a great place for a fixed-wing aircraft to fly. It's not that great for a rotary-wing aircraft to fly either. Um, but uh, CoFlow, this company, has a technology called CoFlow with a hyphen in it, CoFlow Jet. Uh, and it's uh, a type of airfoil that's super efficient. And it's efficient enough that you could actually fly in the Mars atmosphere Potentially at a cruising altitude of like a thousand meters, which is pretty good, uh, and be able to fly really long distances. I'll, I'll get to the numbers in a bit. Um, but it all kind of revolves around this, this airfoil. So the idea is it, it looks like most airfoils that we're familiar with, like the cross section of a wing, except it has an injection and a suction port, uh, an injection port and a suction port that run the length of the wing. So one uh, runs all the way down the leading edge. The other one runs all the way down the trailing edge. And they flow some extra air over the top of the airfoil. So what you present to the atmosphere as you're flying through it is not an airfoil made of aluminum. You're presenting an airfoil that's made of air. And, you know, this is a thin film that flows along the top edge of the airfoil. But by doing this, you get basically no flow separation, even when you're at a high angle of attack. So that that's what a stall is, right? If you are uh, flying quickly, you can have a relatively high angle of attack. If you're flying slowly, the more you increase that angle of attack, the more likely you are for the f- the air to stop flowing over your wing and to just go turbulent. And now your wing is, you know, the same as you holding a stick out the window, right? It's just not 
providing any lift. And so by using this co-flow architecture, you, you basically induce that flow over your wing in the way that you would want it to flow, even if your wing is basically pointed straight up. Um, which is kind of a bizarre idea, but that allows you to rotate your airfoil and produce vertical thrust without having to move your engines. Your engines can be pointed straight forward, blowing air backwards, but because you're inducing this, um, this flow along the airfoil, if your airflow, airfoil is pointed down, that's where your, your thrust is going. There are some other advantages. You get um, reduced drag due to the wake. So a lot of the time, even if you don't have like full-on flow separation, you'll still get uh, a, a rolling like cigar of air behind your wing. And that produces drag. Well, that can pretty much be eliminated. And you also get a, a, an extra little bit of thrust because you're pushing air over the wing in, in a way that you, if you weren't flowing air over it, you wouldn't be flowing that amount of uh, air over the wing. So the vehicle that they've designed is a four wing aircraft. So it's a, it's a biplane, but instead of the wings being one above the other, they're one behind the other. So it's kind of like uh, a standard glider with a tail fin or the, the, the horizontal stabilizer that's as long as the front wing. Actually, now that I look at the photos, it's more like a canard that's a little shorter than the main wing, but they're two, they're four really, really long wings or two really long wings, um, that look just like glider wings. And they're, the whole top surface is covered in solar cells and the top surface of the fuselage is also covered in solar cells. And then they've got a, bunch of propellers along uh, the wing, which is kind of what you expect on Mars. And so their initial uh, like engineering design or engineering studies uh, are looking at a cruise speed of about Mach uh, 0.24. So like a, a quarter of the speed of sound, which is really fast on, on Mars compared to Earth. Yeah. So on Mars, at least this website is saying its speed of sound is about 540 miles per hour. So 540 yeah. times 0.25. Yeah. So 130 miles an hour. So, right. A, a cruise speed of, of a quarter Mach, Mach 0.24, and uh, a cruise lift coefficient of 3.5, um, which they claim is nearly an order of magnitude better than conventional cruise lift coefficients. So cruise, cruise lift coefficient it's also called cruise lift coefficient CL. I think CL is just the, the coefficient, the name of the coefficient that you'll find in the equation. Um, but right, the higher your cruise lift coefficient, the, the more, more lift you lift get at uh, a given speed. Yeah. And so because the atmosphere is so sparse on Mars, you need to be going really, really fast to get enough lift to, to actually get your airplane up into the air. But if you have a really high, um, CL, then you don't have to go so fast and not going so fast means that you don't have to spend as much energy to, to fly. Right. So like it's, it's an important thing to, to be able to optimize. So right. This, this thing, according to this study can fly, but the question is like, how much energy are we actually going to have to spend to move it? Um, and so they're looking at, uh, covering the thing with solar cells, uh, they'd be able to charge their batteries every 7.6 souls. And for, for a full battery charge, they're looking at something 
in the neighborhood of 179 kilometers range at a, at a thousand meters altitude. And like the higher you go, the less atmosphere you have. And that drops off real quick on Mars. Um, so flying at a thousand meters is high enough that you don't have to worry about navigation hazards quite so much. Uh, you get to see a lot of area and to be able to fly at a thousand meters sounds pretty darn good to me. So if you divide the number of souls per Martian year and then multiply it by 179 kilometers, you basically get a yearly range of 16,048 kilometers. I'm just going to drop off the 48 because the, the error bars here are going to be pretty big, but 16,000 kilometers is real good. Uh, for reference, uh, the circumference of Mars at the equator is 21,000 kilometers. So you can basically fly three quarters of the way around the planet every year, uh, every Martian year. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, that's, we're, we're not talking about covering as much ground as, you know, a solar sail, right? But like in planetary terms, that's a heck of a lot of range. And so the question is like, what do you do with that range? So, Ja actually included a number of uh, potential studies that you could do with this, like data that you could go collect. So the first study that they suggest is um, looking at the weak magnetic fields that we see, particularly in large impact basins. So Earth has uh, a core dynamo. That's where all of this liquid uh, iron is flowing in a circle, and that produces the strong magnetic field that we have here on Earth. And Mars, we're pretty sure that its core is totally frozen and solid at this point, right, Dennis? Yeah, there was uh, with, with Insight, we we got the size wrong, but my understanding is that it's still a dead core. Yeah, maybe there's some amount of warmth down there, but I don't think that there's uh, you know, the active core flowing around all those dynamics that we see here on Earth. But anyway, it froze at some point in time, and when it froze, there was still like all the orientation of all the. Uh, of all the iron particles, right? They're all frozen into this one configuration. And so there's this residual magnetic field. It's like a permanent magnet now instead of an electromagnet. Um, and by mapping those magnetic fields, you can start to get a glimpse into what the final state of the core was when it froze. That, I think that's pretty cool. Okay, so moving on, the next one is add-on to large-scale water mining operations on Mars to screen for introduced and alien life. This comes from Stephen Benner at the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution. And uh, uh, Benner, in, <laughs> in this application, uh, basically says, hey, look, there's probably been life on Mars at some point, if not full-on multicellular, almost certainly not full-on multicellular life. But there's probably been amino acids and something like DNA. Like, we're pretty sure that Mars had similar um, similar surface conditions to Earth when Earth was developing life. So, like, in, you know, you can't say that for sure that there's uh, evidence of life on Mars, but, like, it, it's pretty darn probable. And one thing that we do know for sure is that as soon as we start having dirty, grubby little humans running all over the surface, it's going to get a lot harder to find evidence of past life on Mars. And so one of the things that we uh, expect to see is in situ resource utilization, uh, ISRU, where we mine 
uh, subsurface water ice on Mars and electrolyze it into hydrogen and oxygen. And that becomes our fuel for the return trip. Like basically any architecture that you can come up with for putting humans on Mars, uh, requires ISRUs. It's something that you could probably get around for the first mission or two, but if we're going to have enough humans on Mars to, uh, start worrying about contamination, I mean, technically one human on Mars, technically one rover on Mars, but you know what I mean? Like when we start putting people on Mars, it's almost going to be too late to look for, um, these biomolecules. But since we're going to be doing, uh, all this water mining, this is an excellent opportunity to do a very large surface sample because you are sampling the entire area that you're mining, but you're also sampling all of the dust that's blown in, right? Like it's just pretty much a global sample if you can scrape up ice from a large enough area. And so uh, they don't have too many details, but the idea is um, while you are melting and processing that water, let's go ahead and test it for life at the same time. And so uh, they propose uh, a device called ALF. That's the Agnostic Life Finding Device. Um, and you can tell that that is 100% an acronym that they wanted to use because they like the TV show ALF. Uh, <laughs> because it's not ALF, duh. They excluded D from, uh, from this acronym, D for device. Um, but their diagram that's published uh, on the NIAC website basically shows uh, a gel electrophoresis. So, um, D- David and Dennis, do you guys know what gel electrophoresis is? Not really. No. Nah. Okay. I assume so, you have some. Well, I have some idea. Like, yeah. Not, as soon as I, I say it, you'll probably it. recognize it. So, electrophoresis is where you take uh, a gel, usually I think agar agar, and you make a, a square out of it, a, a thin square, maybe like this. A small one would be like the size of a deck of cards. And you poke a bunch of holes in at one end and you put DNA in those holes. And then you put the gel in a water bath that's just tall enough to cover the surface. And then you set up uh, a current across the gel. Because DNA is charged, it will be drawn towards one end of the gel. And because the gel is viscous, it will slow the DNA down and it'll do so preferentially depending on the length of the DNA strand. Longer strands won't travel as quickly as smaller strands will. So gel electrophoresis is, uh, if you just Google the term, you'll see a photo that I think you're going to be familiar with. When we talk about DNA analysis, you always see these images of lines stacked up in a photo. Like it's like ladder rungs next to each other. And what what they're proposing is basically water electrophoresis. So you flow water through a chamber and you have an anode at one side and a cathode on the other. And so the water has to flow in between the anode and cathode. When it gets to the far side, uh, you've basically got water that you're happy to go use. But you're going to take a little bit of water that's between the central flow and the anode at one side and the cathode at the other. And that bit of water is going to be dense with uh, positive and negatively charged molecules. So you can strip off a little bit of that water 
um, and then go analyze it and see if you find things that look like DNA or look like proteins, you know, chains of amino acids. And you can do all this while you're still taking the bulk of the water off for ISRU. And you're doing all of this before people get to Mars and start being grubby little humans like we are. Uh, I would be really disappointed if something like this wasn't implemented. Um, I don't know if we have to use this ALF uh, electrophoresis setup or if there's uh, another, you know, if we can have uh, detectors that we just dunk into water cisterns or whatever. But uh, if if we don't do something like this, I think humanity has, has failed in a big way, <laughs> assuming that we haven't already made discoveries that make this relatively moot. Right. So then the next award is kind of similar. They set these, they ordered these in a very good way, I think. So the next one is called Detoxifying Mars, colon, the biocatalytic elimination of omnipresent perchlorates. This comes from uh, Lynn Rothschild at NASA Ames. So on Mars, there's all this water ice, and it's, you know, pretty, pretty good for making fuel, but not so good for drinking, because all of the ice on Mars, as far as we know, is contaminated is contaminated with perchlorates, uh, and they are toxic, and you cannot ingest them as a human. On top of that, uh, perchlorate and chlorate, uh, two related molecules, are both oxidizers that will corrode any equipment that you put in contact with them. So not good for people, not good for fuel tanks. We need to detoxify this water. Fortunately, uh, perchlorate and chlorate both reduce, right? They're oxidizers, so they will uh, break down in a reduction reaction into uh, chloride, which I believe is easier to isolate from water, and oxygen. Um, and they'll do this spontaneously on their own, but they'll do it very slowly. So in order to detoxify, to pull these two toxins out of the water, um, we're going to need to speed up this uh, this reduction reaction. And you could do that in a bunch of different ways, uh, but Rothschild suggests a really cool way of doing it. And you have to understand that I think this is really cool because my undergraduate degree is in biotechnology. And I was so fascinated with basically building genes from scratch and building synthetic organisms. And like when I was in college, I had just seen the beginning of CRISPR uh, starting up. And I thought that was really cool. But what I really wanted to do was to go build synthetic, synthetic microbes that could do things like clean up oil spills and do that kind of thing. And this is exactly one of those applications. So background, there are microbes on earth that are already producing, uh, catalyst proteins, AKA enzymes that speed up, uh, this reduction reaction. And so the idea here, uh, is they're asking for money to go, um, take two genes that they've identified, uh, PCRAB and CLD and put them into a bacteria called Bacillus subtilis, specifically Bacillus subtilis strain 168. And, uh, B sub 168 is apparently uh, one of the bacteria that we've flown in space and has done really well. So uh, we think that it will be able to survive the conditions en route and also on the surface of Mars. And if we put these two genes in, it will produce the enzymes that will detoxify the water. And so you can just dump some into the water and Bob's your uncle. Uh, you are now ready to drink this water with 
a little <laughs> extra filtering steps, but <laughs> easier steps uh, than before. I think that's pretty cool. So we, we started out with um, astronomy and VLBI and LBI. Then we moved to electrolysis uh, for getting us to Mars. And then uh, a space propulsion method and uh, an aero propulsion method on Mars. And then we end up with uh, water mining on Mars. Like that flow felt really good. And then what's really cool is Dennis was helping me write these up and he just like grabbed what I think looks like the halfway point. Did you actually count it out? Yeah. Yeah. I took the, the, the final six of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you jumped into the very middle. And so now we're going to go from detoxifying Mars to something completely different. And it's really cool that like that was the halfway point and now we jump into a new flow. So go, go ahead. I'm done. No, no, that's good. Yeah, you you had the nice theme going, um, and here's the smorgasbord of uh, remaining uh, projects that are being started. Oh, there's no there's no flow to the back nine. Darn. It's a little. I I can't. I mean, if you squint hard enough, I'm sure you can. <laughs> <get> one, but <laughs> but yeah, it seems pretty uh, all over the place there. But they're really cool. Um, so uh, the next one up is uh, called uh, Swarming Proxima Centauri. Coherent Pico spacecraft swarms or interstellar distances, and so this is one that uh, Thomas uh, Marshall Eubanks, uh, who uh, has a company Space, In- Space Initiatives, uh, has proposed, and uh, essentially these would be gram-sized satellites. So if you're wondering how big is a PicoSat, you know, on order of gram, uh, you know, the size of a gram. And they would have square kilometer sized solar sails that you would uh, boost them using ground based lasers uh, that are 100 gigawatt uh, regime. And so uh, when it comes to solar sails, sometimes you can just be like, oh, we're just going to rely on the sun to, you know, move us around. But when you want to go interstellar distances uh, in reasonable timescales, uh, whenever you talk about solar sails, they typically involve having a power source on Earth and a coherent beam, or actually sometimes I'll even talk about building these on the moon and having the beam actually hit your sail to kind of pulse you a lot harder uh, or, yeah, push you uh, with greater force so that you go faster and accelerate quicker um, than just relying and, on and, uh, the sun itself. And especially when you're far away from the sun because you don't have to worry about the square cube law when it's a laser. Exactly. Yeah, it's not going to drop off um, uh, the inverse square law. Uh, it's going to just... It, depending on how coherent your beam is. And so um, that's something you need to, to do too. The more collimated it is, the better. And so, yeah, so the idea is that these little Pico spacecraft, um, you launch them one at a time, you boost them to 0.2 C, so 20% of the speed of light, and just kind of heave them over towards uh, Proxima Centauri, which is the closest uh, star to the earth right now by extension to our solar system. Uh, now, one thing that's always interesting when it comes to these kind of interstellar missions, even though they're always kind of out there and pretty far off, uh, one of the big challenges is, well, how do you manage to beam back the data to earth uh, effectively? And so the idea would be to have these Pico spacecraft uh, have, uh, even though they launched, you know, separately, they still have very, very precise uh, internal clocks so that they can do their uh, PNT, uh, position, navigation, and timing, so they know relative to each other where they all are and you know what time it is and everything like that. And so they can coordinate based on their location in space when they send their little tiny signal back to Earth so that all those signals arrive at the same time. And so if you've got, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of these or whatever, it adds up to be a strong enough signal that you can actually 
get their, you know, image that they took of Proxima Centauri or whatever uh, at some point in the future when they get there. So they would they would have to share data between them and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna send this packet first and then that packet, and they like all work together to be a giant antenna. That's pretty darn neat. And that yeah, isn't that that's I think that's a clever uh, uh, answer to that you know challenge. But yeah, and so that's yeah, so that's uh, Marshall's uh, project. Uh, and then the next one is uh, uh, LIFA or LIFA or LIFA, but uh, it is a it stands for the lightweight. Fiber-based antenna for small sat compatible radiometry, and so this is uh, Beijia Zhang of MIT. This one was a little tricky to kind of wrap my brain around, but as I understand it, is uh, the, the the problem that they want to solve or work towards solving is uh, building large antennas in space is generally challenging, right? You there's a lot of ideas where you can have them fold or maybe have them kind of self-assemble in space and whatnot, and that's all you know challenging. And so here's another way though that you could do it is that you could actually have the, you know, the metal part of your antenna itself embedded in a type of polymer matrix uh, to form these polymer fibers that you can then coil and uncoil uh, effectively. So I guess you take your kind of, you know, your long antennas, you know, and, and have them be able to wrap up into a more compact space that you could then launch more easily. Uh, and then once they're on orbit, then they unfurl, essentially. Uh, or uncoil, I guess, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's good to approach that problem from different directions. And this is definitely uh, one of them. So one of the cool things that they talk about is their manufacturing process. Because like, if you were to draw a really thin copper fiber and then try to embed it in a polymer to make a, a, a fabric out of, like, you're you're not going to be super successful. You're going to tend to break that um, that thin wire first. And so what they, what they want to do is, um, produce a bunch of, uh, conductive elements. Uh, I'm thinking they're probably going to be talking about, uh, like short fibers of copper or conductive material. I'm thinking maybe even nanotubes. Although if we were talking about like carbon, nanotubes that probably is buzzwordy enough that they would have included it. Um, <laughs> so what they want to do is they want to put all of these inside a polymer bool and then heat it and draw it out to form a fiber. And the, the big reason I like this is because bool B O U L E is French for ball. And we typically, <laughs> at least I typically encounter the word bool when talking about bread, because if you think about, um, like those round loaves of bread with like slices on top of them, not a baguette, but like the, the round loaves of bread that you buy at the in-store bakery at your grocery store. The, that shape is called a boule. And it makes me very happy to think about, uh, like bread involved in this process. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, you can, I, I think what they're doing, they're, they're not, very clear, but they're either doing metal particles or metal fibers, not one long strand that has to be contiguous, putting it all into a little plastic pellet and then drawing that one pellet out into a fiber that's then flexible, but also conductive along this length. And you, they're saying that they could even have multiple types of materials in there, um, depending so that you could have multiple sensing capabilities. So like if you need, you know, this one type of conductor, you can use this if you favor another type of conductor. They're all in there. And so you can get one 
thread to do multiple tasks. Um, I, I don't understand antennas at all. So like, I don't know if it would be like a, a frequency or a resonancy thing or something like that. But yeah, like we, we know how to draw out plastic fibers really well. And so it seems kind of obvious. Well, let's just melt all the conductive material that we need into there first and then draw it out. And they're, they're saying it's cost effective for large, very large antennas and like, cool. Like that's lovely. Also, if it's conductive, could we please get it for wearable? DIY wearable tech because <laughs> there just isn't enough <laughs> uh, good conductive fabric out there. All right, no, that that's good. That that definitely helps clarify the uh, fabrication process. Okay, and then next up we've got Ryan Sprenger from uh, his company uh, Fauna Bio, and so we're shifting gears towards uh, animals, I guess. And so the name of this uh, uh, project is a revolutionary approach to interplanetary space travel studying torpor in animals for space health in humans uh, or stash s-t-a-s-h am i saying that correct torpor i've read that before but i've never actually tried to yeah say it's either that it's either torpor or torpor depending on your accent i've always heard torpor right, yeah torpor. I, I, I turn it into an er sound all right, I'm going to just push through with that then. But essentially, that's that's the fancy way of saying hibernation, essentially. Uh, torpor is the the part of hibernation of just, you know, lowering your metabolism, chilling out, consuming less energy, and going into that kind of semi-stasis mode. And it's it's often used to describe short periods of hibernation. Like, notably, I've probably said this before because it's a fact that sticks in my head. Uh, hummingbirds have such fast metabolisms that they would starve to death overnight if they didn't go into torpor every night. So they don't just sleep. They actually go into torpor overnight. That's wild. This is good that we got the life sciences going on in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, (laughs) my undergraduate degree and special interest, (laughs) a different special interest, I guess. Now, now, now this, this one, uh, Stash, I think that this might be something that I could genuinely see. It doesn't seem quite as it's, it's sure it's advanced and innovative, but it doesn't seem as, out there as, again, sending a swarm of Pico spacecraft to, to a nearby star. Um, and so maybe, you know, this one will get funded through the other phases or ultimately, you know, turn itself into actual hardware. Because the basic idea is that torpor hasn't been studied in space, you know, in weightlessness at all, essentially. And so they are designing a, a unit to basically, you know, you could house two critters in there and be able to, you know, study uh torpor in these creatures and how that's, you know, different, uh, in my, in, uh, weightlessness versus, you know, on the earth's surface. So like refrigerated frogs, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what animals would be good for it. Uh, Probably not the ones like, like probably a hummingbird wouldn't be very good in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I could see frogs. I, and it almost seemed like um, they talked about like you might have one that doesn't undergo torpor uh, mm. next door to it in the second animal chamber. So you can, you know, use it as a control because um, obviously behavior and weightlessness is going to be very different for a lot of critters. Oh, yeah. They say at temperatures as low as 4C. So they're they're definitely thinking about sending this to ISS. Running out of time, but you could send this is totally ISS eligible. I agree. But yeah, it looks like, like cold induced torpor, not just like, Hey, could you go to sleep now? We'll play you some bedtime stories. And yeah, which I guess is good then. Cause you could, you could, you have some selection over what, you know, critter, critter you want to use since, you know, some of them yeah. are better, uh, model organisms than others. And so, yeah. And, and like you said, you can have a control group where you have one mm-hmm. not 
in torpor. I think something as simple as a fly has, tw- you know, goes into torpor, right? Or yeah, at least right. I know that they, yeah. they pretty much look dead when they get cold because I've experienced this and then you hold it in your hand if you want and it just looks dead and then it slowly comes to life or seemingly and then it flies away. So <laughs> I yeah. guess you could use flies. Yeah. I mean, anything, anything cold blooded, I think is capable of this, but there might mm-hmm. be, I can't imagine they're going to send a warm blooded animal that seems like a lot of complexity. Yeah. But in any event, good luck. Uh, with them. And like, yeah, I guess that is a good point that, you know, they're running, they're racing against the clock with the ISS. And so, uh, but who knows, maybe they'll end up on a commercial station. Now, shifting gears again, the next one is a sample return from the surface of Venus uh, by uh, Jeffrey Landis, who's at NASA Glenn. Oh, I got you. And- we, we just talked about cold frogs. Now we're going to talk about cold rocks. Surface of Venus? <laughs> Oh, damn it. Hot you're, rocks. You're mistaken it for really? Mars. You're right. You're right. You're right. Really hot rocks. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, we've never uh, done a sample return there. So who knows? Maybe we are actually, you know, totally surprised by uh, the yeah surface. Yeah, of course, no, the surface temperature is, you know, lead meltingly hot and uh, high density. But um, while I'm sure there's a lot of details uh, that are kind of behind the scenes of what they're working on, just given the top level review uh, real quick is that you kind of it's a concept where you would have your, I guess, your 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 space plane uh, take advantage of, uh, well, have it be powered by carbon monoxide and have it basically be a Venusian air breathing type of propulsion system so that, you know, mm-hmm. it would be grabbing its propellant from the Venusian atmosphere and how, you know, the details of how it would, you know, what its actual, you know, con ops would be, is it's not clear to me, but um they do talk about, you know, next generation, you know, heat resistant materials to be able to survive getting down there. And uh, based on some concept art, which uh, uh, Chubby in the uh, chat had referred to as being very retro looking in a cool way, which uh, I agree uh, with that. Um, it looks like uh, the the, the kind of space plane or I don't know if it counts as a space plane. I guess the, the, the plane uh, would be able to rendezvous with a the return rocket, uh, which... I guess would be suspended in the atmosphere uh, by some kind of balloon uh, while it waits for the plane to return with the sample. And a toroidal so, uh, balloon in this. In this a toroidal balloon, art. yeah. So it, there's a lot of neat stuff going on here, and so I wish them luck because imagine building on this in the 2040s. We actually do a, a you know, heck, maybe even the 2030s do a sample return from from Venus. That would be something else. So the reason that this looks so retro. Um, and this whole concept is very, very like 1960s. Uh, Landis actually has uh, a Nebula Award and two Hugos, I think. He, he's a science fiction author as well as uh, no a very good, yeah, JPL scientist. Well, I think he's worked at JPL. At least this credit is him working at NASA Glenn. Uh, but like, yeah, like, of course, this is the kind of idea that this guy comes up with, right? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, and I guess the last thing also I, I could mention is that the uh, the the aircraft would be solar powered, and so having that uh, would be an important part of how you're able to, you know, make this mission profile work, you know, under such yeah. tough conditions. Yeah, I mean, solar panels are less efficient at higher temperatures, so there there'd be some interesting material science going on there. But then again, you you've got a lot of light coming down, so you don't need to worry about inefficiencies quite so much as you do here on Earth. And so our penultimate winner is titled Autonomous Tritium Micropowered Sensors uh, by Peter Cabal, 
of City Labs. And so this is uh, an energy-related one, which I think this is the only one about um, kind of energy generation of these winners, right? I don't think I forgot uh, any of these other ones. And so, yeah, the, the basic idea, uh, the, the situation is uh, obviously between Artemis and the uh, International Lunar Research Station, uh, everyone wants to go to the lunar poles because there's water there. But they also have permanently shadowed craters. And even when there is uh, sunlight, it's coming in at a very uh, uh, shallow angle. Um, and so uh, traditional batteries have a tough time because the temperatures get so uh, ridiculously cold there. And so uh, there's a class of batteries called beta voltaic batteries. These are uh, nuclear batteries. If we're, you know, think about uh, your your nuclear solid rocket uh, motor before. Well, we're talking about nuclear batteries now, and these have been uh, around since the uh, I think the seventies. Uh, like uh, they've been talking about this and making this idea. And the idea is that you take advantage of a radioactive element, um, typically tritium, to just be your power source. And it's not like an RTG, uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generator, where that's the heat that ultimately drives the electricity. But this is the uh, the beta particles, the electrons uh, that are shooting out, uh, interacting with the semiconductors material or some, some kind of you know magic is happening in there. And uh, essentially, that's where you get your energy from. And so the project would be to uh, disperse a bunch of these uh, microwatts, so low power individually, but I, I guess you have a whole bunch of them, uh, of these uh, tritium power batteries in the uh, permanently shadowed regions of the moon. And so that's what they're uh, designing for. So how do you how do you capture those beta particles? They use a non-thermal uh, converting electron hole pairs produced by the ionization trail of beta particles traversing the semiconductor. Okay, that's really cool. So it's it's basically a solar cell, but for beta particles. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And if you were wondering, it's it sounds like they also do have uh, alpha voltaic devices uh, or mm-hmm. batteries and uh, gamma voltaic batteries as well. I don't know if they've been built or not. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. So semiconductor, you slam electrons into it. Cool. And then finally, uh, rounding us out is uh, Aswath Patabi Rahman of UCLA. Um, they're in a, a professor, their they're faculty there uh, in you know material sciences, and this is a very significant material science project, and and it's called uh, electroluminescently cooled zero boil off propellant depots enabling crude exploration of Mars. And so this is one where uh, the basic goal is to have, you know, uh, you want to go to Mars, let's use nuclear thermal propulsion. And so the liquid hydrogen we bring with us that'll serve as the fuel, we want to have zero boil off. And how can we cool it down so well that it doesn't boil off? And honestly, when I first read this, if I read this out of context, like somebody just talked to me about this phenomenon, I'd be like, okay, that sounds like a crank. Um, I don't believe this is real. Uh, but uh, sorry, uh, Professor Rahman, I, I definitely you know, know that this is real and legitimate. But this electroluminescent cooling is the way that you do this. And this is that semiconductor magic I alluded to before. I'm not quite sure how, but essentially by using the kind of uh, we just talked about uh, electron uh, holes by using uh, exploiting them in semiconductors at the surface, you can have the, uh, I guess the exterior of your tank uh, rather than radiate as a black body, it essentially will radiate even more. It'll have a greater uh, luminosity than even a black body would have at that temperature. And that extra energy in the photons that are leaving are basically extracting that energy from 
the phonons in your you know uh, surface material and and phonons right the fancy way of just saying like the the vibrating the vibrations between them which is the temperature of the material and so that's what it does it basically extracts the temperature more than just radiative cooling would on its own following like a traditional black uh, or planck's law sort of uh, uh, spectrum and so how that works is I mean, this this guy is really big into material science. He actually has a TED talk I watched a little piece of, um, which was uh, about a different type of uh, cooling system, but for Earth trying to solve uh, uh, climate change or you know be part of a you know the suite of solutions for you know solving climate change. But in any event, he's evidently really good at kind of you know these these type of wild materials, and so yeah, you have this special type of uh, surface that allows you to keep your uh, hydrogen propellant tank extra cold so that it could, uh, or, you know, take away any heat and, and keep it nice and cold so that you would have zero boil off for your nice long mission, uh, to Mars. And so pretty sweet way to kind of end things, I guess, you know, crude exploration of Mars. Cause we've talked about sending, uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, vehicles to different parts of the solar system and even beyond. But I think this is the only one that talks about putting, uh, humans on board. Cause right. I think the, uh, the Mars, uh, Maggie, the, uh, the Mars uh, plane, uh, that, that would be for, you know, that would be an uncrewed vehicle. Yeah. So electro, electroluminescent cooling makes sense at a fundamental level, but makes absolutely no sense when you think about the real world. Um, so the idea is that the, the energy of a photon, like it, it's, it's there, right? Like the photon has a, a set amount of energy and it depends on the frequency of the light, I believe. So like the color of the light. Um, and so if, if that energy carried away by the photon is greater than the amount of energy that, that you put in to, you know, basically an LED, like the electricity that you use to generate the photon, that can happen, right? Where you're putting in a little bit of energy, a little bit of electrical energy and you get light that's a little more energy than what you put in. That, that can happen, but only if you're soaking up heat to make up the difference. And so like electroluminescent cooling makes sense if all of your, like for each individual LED, if they are shedding more light then they are producing in heat, more energy and light than they are producing in heat. And like, that sounds really tough to do, but yeah, like if you can do that, because like, we know that physically it's possible for that to happen. If you can keep all the incidental stuff down, sure. Yeah. It'll act as, as a refrigerator and yeah, it, it'll be more powerful than black body radiation, but like, yeah, to, to generate and use up electrical flow, to do that and not just make the whole thing a heating blanket because you're generating and, and spending electricity. That's pretty crazy. So let's do just two short and sweets. And Ben, what's the first? First, India launches an X-ray space observatory. Just hours into the new year, ISRO successfully launched its X-ray polarimeter satellite, also known as ExpoSat, to low Earth orbit on a polar satellite launch vehicle DL, the PSLV-DL. Uh, this is a variant of the PSLV with two solid rocket boosters. This mission is India's first dedicated to X-ray polarimetry, although its Astrosat observatory on orbit since 2015 includes X-ray sensitive instruments. 
The launch also took advantage of the rocket's uppermost stage, which can double as an orbital platform by hosting 10 payloads covering a range of experiments and tech demos. Next, the UAE has announced that they will develop an airlock module for the Lunar Gateway Space Station, which will allow for crews to perform EVAs and retrieve external science payloads. While the module's delivery date wasn't mentioned, a social media post by Dubai's Crown Prince puts it at 2030 at the latest. Closer to home, Blue Origin and Voyager Space received the combined $99.5 million increase in funding from NASA for their commercial LEO destinations, or CLD, projects. Blue's Orbital Reef is intended to act as a business park in space, while Voyager's Star Lab will have cargo delivered to it by Cygnus spacecraft. So let's move on then to this week in spaceflight history. We got uh, two winners. We have Cy Kyle, and then we have Leon Running Man, who also gets uh, the bonus points. Uh, didn't quite get the reason for the clue, but I liked the explanation. Uh, so the clue was, Merry Belated Christmas, I got you a fan. So this is, you know, just coming out a couple weeks after Christmas. And the event was the 12th of January, 1997. It was the launch of Atlantis on STS-81. And uh, and I guess I'll get to the clue a little bit later. This is actually a pretty, uh, not, I mean, by no means like uneventful, but nothing went wrong. Uh, that's like uh, one thing that was very clear about this mission. So like everything just went smoothly, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of a nice mission to have like just after Christmas. You want things to go well. So a nice start to the year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this was the fifth of the shuttle Mir missions. There was a total of nine. I don't know if it was all nine that occurred, but uh, yeah, this was the fifth one. And um, I feel like we just covered this a couple months ago during a different twist. Of- yeah, I think it was the docking adapter being delivered. Because uh, that was uh, probably yeah, I tried to yeah. do something kind of funny with that. Yeah. It's interesting to remember that the first two shuttle mirrors didn't involve docking. The first one was just taking a cosmonaut on a shuttle mission, and then the and then I think the second one was just flying near Mir, but not actually docking with mm-hmm. it. So it was at least two of them that weren't even docking ones. So even though we say fifth, this yeah. is still pretty new shuttle coming to Mir. Yeah. So just real quick, the crew rundown. Uh, the commander of this mission was Mike Baker. The pilot was Brent Jett Jr., or I guess we just call him Jet, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the mission specialists were Peter Wizoff, John Grunsfeld, Marsha Ivins, and Jerry Leninger. Yeah, this was primarily a 10-day mission that, well, the main purpose was to uh, swap out two of the crew, the two American astronauts uh, that were serving aboard Mir, um, but also to deliver 2.8 tons of cargo to Mir. Um, and this included a fan, and this is where the clue comes in. Uh, Merry Christmas, I got you a fan. Uh, so just days prior to the launch, one of two cooling fans in a Mir module, which was called a science freezer. Couldn't find much information on exactly what this science freezer was, but obviously they had some kind of experiments you know, that were going on there. There was a fan that had failed. So uh, NASA, I guess, uh, you know, in the spirit of friendship, uh, they rushed two replacement fans. So I guess they had one as backup and they had that loaded onto the shuttle while it was on the pad. And uh, I guess that's not unusual, right? Because also we just discussed, isn't that when they always do uh, the loading of cargo onto shuttle? Like if it's going to be taking up anything, you always uh, load up the cargo cargo bay essentially while that thing's vertical right there's a mix so so some missions they'll do it horizontal so i think actually space habs and space labs were done horizontally in like the processing facility uh but then there are other ones yeah that that are inside the you know one of these hangars they are loaded into the uh canister vertically and then they're driven vertically to the pad pulled into the rotating service structure and then swung onto. And so the shuttle itself, yeah, gets loaded at the pad. And then sometimes there's other things that they sneak in at the last minute, like manually, like like when they had to repel to deliver the monkeys or whatever, because um, they yeah. want to do that at the last minute. So the monkeys wouldn't get too agitated waiting for liftoff. 
Yeah. So I don't know how big these fans were, but hopefully it wasn't something that needed to be necessarily put in that section of the shuttle. If that was the case, <laughs> maybe. But yeah, this was done pretty much just a couple of days before launch. So basically the two crew that were being swapped out, uh, you had on board Mir, uh, you had Blaha, who had spent 128 days in space. And then you had uh, Jerry Leninger. He was coming in to replace him. And at that time, uh, the 128 days in space was actually a record for any like American astronaut. The exact term was uh, he had more spaceflight experience than anyone else. And I guess that means, you know, experience in space than any American. But uh, yeah, so during this crew rotation, uh, one thing that was interesting is that Blaha spent a lot of time explaining to Leninger exactly how to live on board Mir. Um, apparently, it was like several hours each day. Um, and he went into great detail. And uh, he explained how you can apparently bathe with just a few thimbles of water because that's how uh, precious water was on board Mir. Uh, I didn't think it was that bad, but uh, mm. basically you have these little towels and you can, you know, cut them into strips and then you can soak them in a little thimble and you can use that to bathe with. So I'm sure it did smell bad, um, which <laughs> is one more reason to get a fan, <laughs> which I believe was, uh, the justification for the clue that uh, Cy Kyle wrote in with. Um, but alas, I don't know if there were any actual fans of that sort brought on board. Uh, don't think they would, you know, exactly work. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so lots of time spent together basically telling him this is how you're going to survive on board this space station. And indeed, I think he needed all the advice he could get because it was not an uneventful, uh, four months, which is how long Jerry Leninger was there on board Mir. And, uh, we talked about in past episodes, uh, the fire that had occurred. Uh, that was a very mm -hmm. scary time. Um, so just all kinds of things didn't exactly go to plan. Uh, and it was a very difficult four months because from what Leninger had said, he and the, the other cosmonauts were not given any time to do anything for themselves. Their whole day was, you know, planned out by ground control from the moment that they wake up until the moment that they go to bed. Yeah. So it was kind of like an us against them. That's what he said in an interview. So what were the experiments on board? Uh, you had the space hab logistics double module. So that was actually put in the bay. Uh, so like you said, that was probably integrated horizontally. Yeah. So like within space hab, uh, they had the TVIS, which is the treadmill vibration isolation and stabilization system. Um, and this is something that was, I believe, later used on board the International Space Station. I'm not talking about the American one because apparently this is something that was supposed to be used on the Russian service module on board the ISS. This was the first time that that was tested and they did it on board shuttle. Um, and then, you know, at some point later on, it was integrated on board the ISS. But I don't know if it was brought on board Mir. I couldn't quite find information on that. I think maybe it was just kept on board the Space Hab. Uh, and then another experiment on board Space Hab was uh, the European BioRack facility. So here's a little bit more biology. Uh, this contained two incubators and a glove box, but it didn't have a cooling system. So I guess uh, there were no need for cooling fans on board that. Um, and it was aligned with Arabidopsis seeds. And I think, Ben, you had uh, explained how these were commonly used in experiments in space. Yep. Um, I don't know if it's – or if that's just in general, right? Because they're kind of like the fruit flies of uh, the plant world. Yeah, they're they're a common. They're not one of the like first order model organisms, but like they've been a model organism for a while. They they have very relatively quick generation speeds and uh, other things that make them good for uh, model organisms. They're also tasty. They're in the mustard family, like broccoli. <laughs> oh wait, Ch wait, hang on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm going to totally derail this. Chubby said, "Except tomatoes." D did you guys hear that they found the missing tomato from what was the growth, the plant growth experiment? It's called like Grow or something. It had oh, a, I don't a, remember a, the experiment, but I I did follow a little bit of that saga. Yeah, Frank Rubio was the one yeah. who last saw it, and yeah, and then he left. And the then station they found and it. Was the one found. Mm -hmm. They found it, and nobody 
close enough to ask an astronaut <laughs> actually asked <laughs> uh where they found it they just kind of made a call down to to mss or mcc and said hey we found the tomato so like almost certainly it showed up like on a on a uh an intake an air intake right like that's where everything mm-hmm. goes eventually but yeah they they found the tomato not very satisfactory sidebar but like had to bring it up cuz we never we didn't talk about it on the show like what kind of shape was that tomato in it it had to have been do you think it was just completely desiccated or was it kind of like slimy yeah it's, moldy? it's no i th- i think it's probably i don't know like the the skin goes a long way to preserving a tomato and the temperatures inside ISS aren't that warm so like i i don't expect that it was desiccated but like maybe it was a little wrinkly like I found cherry tomatoes in the corner of my kitchen that were like kind of wrinkly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the incubators on the BioRack facility, um, they were maintained at 22 degrees and 36.5 degrees Celsius. So the first one's at about, you know, like room temperature, then the other one significantly hotter. Um, and they had three preset rotational speeds. So basically the Arabidopsis seeds, right? Uh, I, I guess this was an experiment among other things to see how they respond to, you know, a centrifugal artificially induced gravity type of environment. And uh, I don't know what the exact speeds were but maybe one was like something like 1G. I don't know how quickly you can spin plants before they don't grow right. So let's do some NPR stuff because there's a couple of NPR references here. And this is where I probably would have come up with a better clue had I known about this before I said the clue. So John Grunsfeld, uh, who is one of uh, the mission specialists, he uh, called Car Talk Radio from <laughs> the Atlantis. And I didn't I know about this. I remember that. I think I remember that. Yeah. And so this was a whole like elaborate prank. They didn't know about it. He had arranged it with the producers of the show. And apparently he knew them. Uh, he had worked in a self-help garage run by Tom and Ray. Tom and Ray Maliotti. I think that's how you say their last name, but they're just known as the Tappet Brothers to me. Or, you know, like click and clack, right? Um <laughs> And so he calls in. He says that he has one of those like government issue Rockwell deals, which I don't know if that's supposed to be a kind of actual wheeled vehicle, but they're like, a what? He's like, you know, like, you know, a Rockwell van. Um, now, of course, Rockwell is the primary contractor for the space shuttle, and that's why he said that. Um, and then he talks about how it runs very rough for the first few minutes. Then it goes much more smoothly for about like six and a half minutes, and then the engine dies. And I think because I actually just listened to it, I think they were kind of picking up on the fact that maybe this was not a normal vehicle because the whole time he's, you know, talking to them and it does sound like he's calling from space because we all know what that sounds like. We know, you know, the kind of transmission you get, mm-hmm. um, how that audio sounds. Well, and also they, they knew that it was a scheduled call and that it was a special person, but I don't think they were told. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. I thought the prank was complete. Like they were, it was just passed through. I mean, he, it, it totally could have been a, you know, a staged prank. Like they, they would absolutely do that. But if I remember correctly, like they actually were surprised when they finally figured it out. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It was arranged with the producers of the show, but the hosts didn't know is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 So they eventually figured it out. I think the one of them said, it sounds like, you're like Tom Hanks in Apollo 13 and you're about to tell us that you have a problem or something. I mean, and it did sound like that. Like it sounds like you're talking to an astronaut because it just has that particular audio quality, you know, that, you know, that particular sound. They said exactly where you're calling from. And he says about 200 miles north of Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> they figured it out. But, um, anyway, there's a YouTube video where you can listen to this. That's the only link that's available for free. If you want to check that out, um, just a couple of minutes. Uh, pretty fun. Okay, so I got I got two of the three speeds. Okay, two of the three speeds for those plants. One is 104.5 revolutions per minute, which is 0.94 G. And the other one is 106.0 revolutions per minute, which is 9.7 G. Oh, and 107 is the other one. So yeah, one, 104 and a half 
106 and 107 are the three speeds. Why do you suppose such uh, small increments? No clue. <laughs> and and to be fair, like they, they rotate with a fixed velocity of 107 plus or minus two revolutions per minute. So the three speeds that they had pre-configured, they're just like the, the motor controller is set to that. It's not that they can't do anything else. It's just like they, they just set up three buttons, I think, for each flight. And it looks like they've done more than those three speeds somewhere in the the 107 revolutions per minute range. But they just kind of they kind of pick a couple of speeds and go with it hmm. for each mission. That was unsatisfying. <laughs> Actually, uh, I'm, good to know though. Yeah, I'm reading here that there were a bunch of other things that they tested too, in addition to the Arabidopsis, which is also called Cress, right? Oh yeah, water water cress. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess they I guess they do actually grow it for food. Now that I think about it, yeah. If it, if it's mm. you know a version of water cress, sure, yeah. Mm. But uh, okay, one other NPR thing, and I've mentioned this probably since we've been doing this podcast three times, probably maybe more, mm. but why not again? The Lineger interview that he did on Fresh Air, there's actually two of them. There was one in 2000 and then one in 2003. Uh, they're very good. I just say go and listen to them. It's about his time on board Mirror. Um, some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, um, and I think at the time he was promoting a book, Letters from Earth, I think is what it's called. Um, and it was written sort of like to his son in the form of a book. His yeah. son who was, I think, at the time, you know, just like 14 months old or something. But um, yeah, very good interview. Check it out. Um, I'll always uh, point people to that if you want to hear an astronaut talk about exactly what it's like to live on Mir. But yeah, so after the, those five days, the uh, the hatches were closed on January 19th for a return to Kennedy Space Center. Uh, the shuttle did a fly around inspection and I didn't know that it did that. I mean, it's something that I guess you do with the space station. I don't know what they were inspecting, but I guess it was part of the, you know, joint operations that they were holding the, Hey, can you do a fly around and make sure everything's still attached? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that's interesting that they did inspections on. Mirror, or that the shuttle would do inspections on Mir, obviously. I mean, if it was like a Soyuz, sure. Uh, and then they prepared to land. They were actually waved off from landing for one orbit. So yet yeah, you do get that one more go round, right? Uh, after that, I don't think you can, right? How many orbits do you have before you're, you know, like out of range? Yeah, before you drag drifts. I don't think you can do, I mean, the shuttle has more cross range than pretty much anything else that's flown so far, I think, but I don't think. But I think it's do... supposed to be one orbit's worth. So you can do that orbit once, yeah. right? The whole idea was those West Coast DOD missions would fly, deploy a satellite or steal a Russian satellite or Soviet satellite or whatever, and then have enough cross range to land back at, you know, at Edwards, even though it moved 1500 kilometers underneath you. Good point. I think that was probably more like a polar launch, right? So you would have to. That's, that's why they forced it to have the design that it did which kind of mm -hmm. was unfortunate since it ended up not doing a single one of those missions. But in this case, it was it was able to make it back to KSC, so it didn't have to land in California. And it did land on January 22nd. One last little thing, uh, Blaha, he put forward the idea while on board Mir that he wanted to try, and I don't know why, I guess just to test what the effects are on a human being. Uh, he wanted to land the shuttle in the STA, which is the shuttle training aircraft, um, which is a converted, I don't remember what the exact vehicle was a small jet aircraft mm -hmm. um, and uh, he wanted to see if he could you know successfully land this actual aircraft that basically handled like the shuttle um, and this is after spending 120 days in space he was told 
you're probably not going to be up to that challenge. And he's like, well, I, I want to try anyway. So once he did make it to the ground, uh, Dave Listma, who was the head of the flight crew operations, he asked if he's still willing to do it. And he said the answer was no, because uh, he said there was no way he was going to be able to like even walk, let alone land in aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that it, uh, was much more difficult than he thought getting reacclimated to like living in 1G. But yeah, because this is 128 days. I don't know what kinds of exercises they did on board Mir. I do remember from what I read, at least the Russians weren't, weren't always the best at keeping up with that kind of thing. Um, I don't know what the American astronauts on board did. But anyway, yeah, so that's your This Week in Space Flight History, nice and short, hopefully. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you for that good, uh, more shuttle mirror fun coming from our, uh, twist mm-hmm. in the last, uh, six months or so. Well, Ben, next week is the 16th to the 22nd of January. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Next week in 1965, the clue is the there of there and back again. I like that one. Uh, so any of you, uh, Tolkien fans out there, if you have an idea of what event this clue is referencing, um, you can email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a tweet on Mastodon using the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. Uh, there you could type slash TWSF to hand your guest directly to TomBot. So good luck, everyone. Good luck. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. Uh, ben, what's the first launch? First up is Kinetica 1 flying an unknown payload. Uh, you guys, I think, talked about this last week. And so it's kind of on the border. Um, we've got a launch date. It's kind of on the border between the two weeks. So that's why we're mentioning it twice. It's uh, got a launch time uh, driven from a NOTAM. So probably going to be launching uh, in this window, but we don't know exactly when, and we don't know exactly what the payload is. So this is going to be flying on Wednesday, January 10th, sometime between 0200 hours UTC and 0800 hours UTC. And next up, we've got our only Falcon 9 of the week. It's like, what? And so, uh, yeah, so this Falcon 9 will be taking Starlink Group 710 to LEO. Uh, this is coming from an NET pair NOTAMs. Uh, so we've got, again, January 10th, sometime between 0500 to 0927 UTC. And uh, this rocket will be flying out of Vandenberg on the West Coast out of Slick 4E. And then after that, on January 11th, we have the launch of Gravity 1. And this is uh, a launch being held or being conducted by Orion Space Technology. Have we ever talked about them? I think it's, I think it's Orion Space. Orion. Okay. It's spelled with an E. So yeah. I guess still maybe Orion Space. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have talked about them though. I, I definitely yeah. didn't recognize it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Gravity One launch vehicle. Uh, that's the name of the launch vehicle. So I guess, uh, the payload itself is TBD. Uh, if it has one, I guess it has something on board. So yeah, this is just the first launch of Gravity One. All right. Um, so good luck. Uh, this is, yeah, and this is a sea launch. It's launching from Haiyang, Haiyang spaceport. Um, and so the launch window for that is on January 11th, starting at 0300 UTC through 0900 UTC. So a nice long launch window there. Uh, yeah, good luck to Gravity One. I'd be interested to know more about that vehicle. I don't know anything about that one. Yeah, the Wikipedia didn't have anything on like the type of rocket, just some stats about what kind of payload capacity it has, but not like what propellants it uses or how many stages it has or anything like that. Well, a vehicle that we do know a lot about is H2A. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So our next launch is an H2A in the 202 configuration uh, flying IGS Optical 8. Um, IGS is Intelligence Gathering Satellite. So it's a... uh, 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 
military recon satellite, uh, launched or operated by the, uh, cabinet satellite information center. Uh, oh, and actually, uh, it does have some civil uses. Uh, they're also going to be doing national disaster monitoring with it. Uh, but this is going to be flying out of Tanegashima on Thursday, January 11th, sometime between 0400 hours UTC and 0600 hours UTC. And then we've got something uh, pretty neat and uh, different. NASA TV will have some coverage of the unveiling, uh, or I guess the rollout ceremony, uh, of the X-59 quiet supersonic aircraft. So this is the one that's being designed as just a test, you know, vehicle for seeing if you can fly at supersonic speeds and not have very loud sonic booms terrorizing the people underneath you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this will be, yeah, uh, broadcast live on NASA TV on Friday, January 12th at 4 p.m. Eastern. X-59 looks like a lawn dart. And it is you a- might also, yeah, you might also associate it with the mission name, which is Quest, Quest with two S's. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is that weird Delta Wing long nose spacecraft delta wing and canards and then finally it's a long march 7 and that is launching tianzhou 7 so this is a cargo resupply to the chinese space station the launch window for that is on january the 15th at 1300 utc through 1600 utc and it's launching from one chong space launch site from it just says 201 so uh, i guess that's the space launch site 201 i'm not sure but you can't watch it anyway so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wonchang Space Launch Site. That's where it's launching from. Uh, so, yeah, and that is it. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dunn for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Citronaut, Colin, Chubby, Doflirty, Mike, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correct burns on the fly and if you want to support the show please tell a friend or better yet leave us a review wherever you listen and you can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign and affiliate links get in touch find links to our mailing list discord server and mastodon account at the orbitalmechanics.com slash about or you can skip all that by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com so that's it we'll see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you